0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Every generation of Christians has to struggle with the question of religion and politics, or more precisely, the question of our Christian responsibility in the cultural and political arenas. Looking back over the last several years, it is clear that we are living in a time of tremendous cultural change. In many ways, there has been a reset of this equation. We can look back at developments such as the rise of the Christian right in the 1980s, and we can look at the reality of where we now stand in America in the second decade of the 21st century. We need to think in very serious ways, and in ways that take us beyond mere platitudes and political certainties as we think about our Christian responsibility. This is going to require us to think theologically as well as politically, convictionally as well as culturally. That's why we're talking about it today on Thinking in Public. It was several years ago I first met Pete Wayner. He was then deputy assistant to President George W. Bush and director of the White House Office of Strategic Initiatives. He's now a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center there in Washington, D.C. Pete Wayner, along with his friend Michael Gerson, who was senior speechwriter to President George W. Bush, has written the book City of Man, Religion and Politics in a New Era. Now, what? Peter Weiner and Michael Gerson are calling for in this new book, City of Man,"s a reset of the equation when it comes to discussing religion and politics in America. But they're speaking as and to evangelical Christians, given our particular responsibility, given our Christian convictions, for engagement in the public square. This is one of those books that is likely to create a lot of conversation, and that's why we're th- talking about it today on Thinking in Public. Pete Weiner, welcome to the program.
1: It's a delight to be with you. Thanks for having me on.
0: Now, let me just ask you, you obviously wrote this book because there was some sense of need. What was the sense of need that prompted the writing of this particular book?
1: Well, it was several things. Uh, Mike and I feel like that we're uh, at a plastic moment, a fluid moment, in the relationship between evangelicals and politics. Uh, the old movement, the religious right, um, I think is fading away from the scene um, for various reasons that we can, uh, we can go into, and I think that something is going to emerge Uh, today gets place, And Mike and I had some ideas on what that movement should be, what its underpinning should be, uh, what are some of the precepts and ideas that uh, that ought to inform it. This is an ancient question, as you know. Uh, It goes back, really, to the time of Christ. And a lot of very smart people and wise people over the years have uh, have written on it, but every generation has to apply old truths to new circumstances, and that uh, is what we were trying to do.
0: I think, indeed, it's an inevitable question. Uh, The inevitability of the question comes down to the fact that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, ultimately, as Christians, but we are also citizens of an earthly kingdom. And uh, coming to an accurate computation and understanding of those relative responsibilities is something that does come uniquely to every generation. But Pete, I'm going to test a theory with you. Sure. Uh, w- when it comes to uh, for instance, looking at generational histories and the in the the course of the Christian church, mm-hmm. the reality is that many Christians really never had to think through this much uh, they, they simply had an inherited political model they were living under a monarchy or a dictatorship or 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 some kind of uh, a government in which they had very little voice. but this comes as a particular challenge to evangelical Christians in America given the fact that we're in an experiment in ordered liberty, a, a, a republic, and uh, that does put more responsibility on Christians to figure these things out.
1: Well, that's exactly right. That's a very nice way to, uh, to frame it. Uh, and, and one of the issues that Mike and I take up in this book is that the precepts, things that ought to guide Christians in, in their view of politics, uh, depends in part on the regime in which they live under. Uh, if you live under an authoritarian or totalitarian regime or a monarchy, then that requires one set. Of uh, responses, and if you live in a democracy, it requires something else. But you're quite right. In the history of Christianity, democracy, uh, republics—they're relatively uh... new and recent—and it it poses both an opportunity and a challenge for, for for Christians. The opportunity is to try and direct policies that encourage human flourishing. The danger is that Christians get uh, more closely associated with power, and Christianity and that relationship to power is very, very tricky and. Uh, Christ himself warned about it.
0: Well, I would presume that two men who uh, who worked in the uh, in the White House uh, so closely with an American president would be in a pretty good position to evaluate, now looking back over several years, exactly what those threats might be. But I want to move first to the subtitle of your book, City of Man. The subtitle is Religion and Politics in a New Era. I think most of us since we're in a new era. I've probably done more Uh, thinking and talking about this than almost anything else lately when it comes to the question of uh, Christian political engagement. I've got my own ideas on the subject, but you wrote this book. And in in this book, you make an argument that the religious right is over. Very interestingly, you say that's not a value judgment. that's, uh, That's a fact. So let's talk about that. Let's look back and take the measure of the religious right.
1: Yeah, it's it's a fair question and a good question. I think in taking the measure of the religious right, uh, you've got things both, uh, in, in my judgment and Mike's judgment, that uh, credit it and, and discredit it. I think on the plus side, it was a uh, movement of principle, and it advocated policies that I think... Uh, were not only right but, uh, but courageous, most especially the culture of, uh, of life question. And it was a movement, a defensive movement, against um, a kind of secular uh, and largely liberal uh, current of thought and philosophy that really began to overtake this country in the late 1960s and 1970s, and that gave rise uh, to a kind of a movement of resistance, and that was embodied in part in the religious right, and I think that that was an important to do. On the other hand, um, I think that the religious right, uh, in some of the ways that it approached questions in terms of tone and countenance, um, made some mistakes. I think there were some theological mistakes as well. I think that Some of the leading spokesmen of the religious right um, spoke about America as if it was a new Israel, and uh, would ascribe certain events uh, to uh, the judgment of God, saying, for example, that nine eleven was uh, the judgment of God on America, uh, which uh, which I don't think is um, is right. Uh, What you've also seen is that a new generation of uh, younger Christians, people in their thirties and below. Who associate themselves with the policies of the religious right have increasingly disassociated themselves with the image of the of the uh, religious right and some of the spokesmen that embody the uh, the religious right and so uh, you've got a number of, uh, of of people I think a large segment of Christians who are looking for a new model a new way to uh, uh, to deal with the social engagement on some of these key um, cultural issues.
0: and I certainly hope you're right. You know, there, there's several ways to read this situation. And, uh, and one of them is, is through the lenses of someone like Mark Twain. And uh, Pete, you love literature. You may remember that, uh, you know, Mark Twain somewhere said basically that almost everyone, every man starts out young and optimistic and ends up old and cranky. And uh, there's a sense in which if you were looking back at the late 70s and early 80s, the new Christian right looked like the coming thing, optimistic and hopeful, uh, certainly addressing issues of tremendous urgency. But uh, there is the danger when you look back to, for instance, the late – well, the the last several years. Let's just leave it at that. Mm -hmm. uh, There does appear to be a crankiness uh, that has entered in. And uh, that has political consequences. I, I do fear, and I heard I heard your optimism when you said that these younger evangelicals hold many of the same positions and convictions, but they they want to change the tone. I have to say, I I, I believe we have to hope that's right. Uh, there there is also evidence that they may be uh, in in late modernity here under the pressures of the cultural uh, forces that are uh, all around us, and uh, and given the, the the massive impact of the media and higher education and all the rest. There may be some substantial value shifts there as well. But we'll get to that in a minute. Let's talk about the new Christian right in one specific question, and that is, as you look to the necessity of rethinking the question now, uh, to what degree do we have to really go back to the beginning? In other words, you're not really just calling for a recalibration of the new religious right. You're calling for a rethinking of the equation. And, and for that reason, you've got to go back further. And you go back where many of us want always to go back, which is, first of all, to the Scriptures, and especially to the New Testament, as Christians find their grounding for any kind of cultural engagement, and then to the seminal figure of Augustine. And uh, when you write The City of Man, you know, you can't help but think of Augustine's great work, The City of God, in which he talks about the two cities and the Christian's relative responsibility to each, the city of God, which is ruled by the love of God, and the passions, that would be derivative of the love of God, and then the city of man, which is a city of pride and human arrogance, where nonetheless those who are made in God's image reside, and where Christians have a responsibility for their good. So as you're rethinking this, how are you putting that together?
1: Yeah, well, uh, we're not putting it together as well as Augustine. (laughs) I'll admit that at at the outset. Um, Look, I think that um, what you have to do is you have to keep those precepts in mind, and it is exactly as you said, which we're um, citizens of two kingdoms. Our loyalties are above all to the city um, of God, but we live in the city of man. And you have to engage these questions, these political questions, because politics has profound human consequences. And you know uh, better than I do, if you go through the history of Christianity, the pendulum has swung very widely from people who feel like you ought to be completely disengaged uh, with uh, with politics, uh, the Anabaptist movement and so forth, those who had a kind of full immersion of, 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 of the two, and religion and the state, there was virtually no distinction. And my view, and Mike's view, is that there's a continuum here, and that Christians um, should be involved in politics because we have an obligation uh, to, uh, to advance human dignity and human flourishing. But you have to do so in a way um, that is true and shows fidelity uh, to Christianity and to the Lord and to the Scriptures, uh, and in a way that brings a kind of distinctive message to, to politics. That's why uh, evangelical Christians and, and uh, Christian churches— and denominations uh, shouldn't become completely and fully associated with political parties. If there's no distinction between what we as Christians uh, bring to politics and what political operatives do, then I think that there's there's um, something missing. We in this book try and offer a 10-point plan on what um, Christians you know should think on particular issues we have our views we, we state them forthrightly in the book I, I hope clearly enough in the book but what we really wanted to do was to think through some of the fundamental questions for example what's the role and purpose of the state from a from a Christian view and we talk about things such as um, order justice virtue and prosperity or what's the role of morality in in foreign policy and that's you know very different than offering a checklist of Voting, voting items. Um, and, you know, our view was informed in part because of something I said earlier, which is the religious right was, was largely a defensive uh, movement and for understandable reasons. But I think what that may have precluded or, or overshadowed was thinking through some basic, fundamental, 1st uh, principle questions. And that's try, what we try and do in the book. We wrestle with it. And uh, you know we try yeah. to offer up something that's
0: useful. You know, I think many Christians are uh, are basically unaware of the fact that there has been a tremendous theological investment in this throughout the history of the Christian Church. And uh, you have on the one end a Constantinianism, which is most closely associated with the Catholic Church histor- historically. Uh, that uh that basically the the church and the state can be unified in a way that uh, that that leads to a Christian society on the other hand, you do have the radical Reformation and the Anabaptists who have an extreme sectarianism and do their very best to withdraw from the public square and from any engagement and in the middle you've got all kinds of other things i mean we 're talking here about two cities using the uh, the the great model given to us by Augustine, the great bishop of the uh, of the fifth century. But uh, when it comes to, uh, for instance, the Reformation churches, the Reformed churches and Lutheran churches went in two very different directions. Right. And uh, the Lutheran uh, you know, doctrine of the two kingdoms of two completely separate spheres, uh, that turns out not to be, I think, too helpful in America in the 21st century. Uh, the Reformed understanding of, uh, of a Christian influence and in culture, it, it's also there. But I'll tell you, and, 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 and that's where I would find my home, but, but Pete, I got to tell you, the, the great concern I have when people start uh, quoting Abraham Kuyper and others is that there's the ambition, or at least the sense of, of possibility even, of a Christian political engagement that can create a Christian culture. You're, you're not really suggesting that there can be the creation of a Christian culture rather than that uh, there will be Christian influence in this in this culture.
1: Yes, that's an important distinction. No, I don't think we can uh, create a uh, a Christian culture. I think Part of that, frankly, is grounded in Scripture itself, I mean, Christ said that the world hated me and the world will hate you. And really, in a deep way, this is not our home. That's right. Uh, and it wasn't supposed to be our home. And look, what's sort what of the, you know, when Ananias talked to Saul before before the conversion, what did he say? He said that, you know, that he was quoting the Lord, and he said, I'm going to show you all that you must suffer for my sake. Over and over again in the, uh, in the in the gospels and the epistles, you know what are we told? We're told that there's going to be persecution and hardship, but keep yeah. you know let the eyes of your heart be enlightened to the to, to the hope that is ours and in, in Christ and the coming kingdom. And so there's always a tension between those those um those two cities and and I reject the idea that that you can have a Christian culture or that we have a christian america that doesn't mean that you can't advance what we would deem to be christian objectives uh the abolition movement the civil rights movement uh the pro life movement I think you can argue with a great deal of of persuasion you know advance things uh, that uh uh, advanced justice and advance things that I think that the lord would would, uh, would care about but that 's really quite different than thinking that you can uh, take power and take control and take authority and take dominion uh, over culture or society or political movements that 's yeah. just outside of our of our realm we weren 't called to do it and i don 't think we can do it.
0: You know, looking back at the new Christian right, it's it's very easy to look back and see that there were major category errors, that there were precious, important, urgent, uh, threatened values and uh, and moral convictions that had to be preserved and had to be uh, the, the issue of our contention, had to be asserted in the public square in, in a way that can only can only be described as a matter of basic Christian faithfulness. But that same faithfulness in this new era calls us to rethink the equation. My conversation with Pete Wayner about the book he has just written with Michael Gerson entitled City of Man, Religion and Politics in a New Era is an attempt at a reset. And, you know, as I think about it, it raises certain questions in my mind. I think the most basic questions of Christian political engagement when it comes to actually how we make a tangible approach to a government or to a society visible before our eyes – The background question has to be, what exactly we can or should expect a government? When I come back with Pete Wayner, that's the question I'm going to ask him. I'm talking with Pete Wayner of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., author of the book City of Man, along with his friend Michael Gerson, You know, Pete, you and Michael both had extensive experience in the Bush White House. You were there at the the center of so many things happening. And now you're writing this book. Is is this book something of a a mea culpa? Is it a reset of your own thinking? You know, talk the personal angle on this. No, it's
1: it's not a mea culpa. Uh, And uh, I'm not even sure that it's a a, a reset. I mean, Mike and I, when we were in the White House, talked about these Questions, quite frankly, um, a lot, and I talk to them with friends, people in Bible study, and you know I've been involved in public policy and politics for my entire adult life, in one one way or another. And uh, these things have always been been out there. This this inherent tension uh, between being involved in politics, being careful about it, not being drawn into it, uh, not succumbing to the temptations of power, trying to create. Great things in your life that that resist it. I haven't always done it um but uh but it's something that I've been aware of and uh and I must say when when we were in the lighthouse uh there was less of 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 uh of uh, tension and less temptations than I actually would have imagined, and I think that was frankly because of the quality of the people that we worked with. Um, Mike and I were never in a position uh, where we were asked to do anything that that we felt compromised our principles. Uh, and we were around people who were involved in politics for what we thought were were noble and uh, and good reasons. Uh, we you know we made mistakes uh, in execution and, and mistakes in policy, but in terms of conscience, our, our conscience is uh, is 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 clear on that score. Um, but, you know, when you're involved in politics at that level, you know, you know what the temptation is. I'm going to give you examples. You know, one of the chapters in our book is devoted to tone uh, and how uh, Christians should engage in public um, arguments. And uh, we make the case that you can have passionate, spirited debates. But it needs to be civil, and you need to be able to treat people with a certain amount of human uh, dignity and and with a certain amount of of respect. But I can tell you when you were there in the cockpit and the incoming fire uh, is there and uh, people that you – president, that you respect and have affection for is not only being attacked but in your estimation being slandered – You you want to respond, and how do you respond in a way that's appropriate and civil and even deeper than civility is with a spirit of grace? What does that mean? How does it work itself out?
0: Uh, Is it practical? And, of course, there's a great question as to how much control you actually have over tone. We certainly have control over our tone as we engage and speak. But uh, we don't always even have control over how that tone is, is going to be received or interpreted uh, or, for that matter, manipulated and communicated uh, in the public square. And, and that's one of the reasons why this takes, uh, this takes a lot of give and take. Uh, you know, in other words, you, you win some, you lose some. You, you learn a lot along the way. You know, Pete, you, you've invested so much of your life in this. Uh, what, what do you hope for out of government? Let, let, let's talk about the essence of your book. What should Christians hope for out of government? Well, I think what we ought to hope for for government, what we ought to push government to do uh, is to
1: um, advance uh, order uh, and justice uh, and uh, virtue and prosperity. Now, it doesn't do it perfectly, and there are limits to it. And in our book, we talk about the areas where government has more or less control and power. For example, government is, has a much bigger role in, in, the, uh, in the category of order than it does in, uh, in virtue, I think. On the other hand, uh, laws are an embodiment of our moral life and and they reflect a moral disposition and what what we affirm and what we we condemn. And so laws are very important in terms of shaping uh, moral sentiments. And, uh, you know, George Will years ago wrote a book called Statecraft to Soulcraft. Now that may overstate things uh, a bit, certainly from a Christian perspective in terms of the soul. But when you read his book and you understand what will is arguing, which is to shape moral sentiments, you know, law and government is important in in that regard on on really uh, a whole range of of questions. And, um, you know, Mike and I have seen government. Do well, and and uh, and we've seen it do poorly. Um, but at the end, I'm not cynical, and either is Mike, about government and what government can do. It's again, I just want to reemphasize that uh, that there are limitations to it, and as a yeah. Christian, there are inherent limitations on what we think government can achieve here uh, here on earth. But given those limitations, uh, it can do quite a lot. That's uh, that's good. Uh, and whether you're talking about crime, or whether you're talking about the pro-life issue, or whether you're talking about uh, drug use, or, or or civil rights, and uh, and so forth.
0: You know, when it comes to the role of the Christian in society, uh, you cite one of my dear friends and uh, and mentors, the late uh, Carl F. H. Henry. Yeah and uh, the distinction he made between the church and the Christian's responsibility. And, you know, of all the things in your book that I think are important to be present, I think that might be the most important section, because there are many Christians who simply assume that an individual Christian citizen's responsibility is the church's responsibility. And uh, and you go back to a very healthy kind of balance in the, in the, the uh, political theory of Carl Henry when you point out that the church is called to offer... General principles on the basis of the preaching of the gospel and of the word of God. It's really up to individual Christians to work out exactly how, how that uh, that works, and uh, where the implications will lead us in terms of the actual give and take and uh, and uh, context of decision making in politics.
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, Carl Henry, uh, as you know, said uh, that uh, the church ought to articulate general principles bearing on social concern, but you ought to leave it to individuals to apply those principles um, in particular cases. And we tell the story about Richard Mao, who's now president of uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, and how back in the late 1960s he had written a piece um, for uh, Christianity Today, which Carl Henry was editing at the time. And they got into a debate because um, uh, Richard uh, had wanted uh, to uh, argue that the Church should be more actively involved in the anti-war cause, in this case having to do with Vietnam. And Carl Henry uh, tried to warn him off of that, and, and essentially arguing, "Look, that's dangerous territory because that's not the role of the of the church. Church articulates uh, general moral principles, but Chris, individual Christians bring expertise to these questions. They have to work this out themselves." And and uh, just recently, Richard Mal wrote a piece that was titled "Carl Henry Was Right," and he conceded uh, that uh, that uh, that fact, yeah. and uh, and we agree with Henry.
0: You know, Pete, one of my favorite uh, reminiscences of, uh, of the last several years in terms of politics was an article was written about you, and as I recall, you were in the White House with your two little boys, and they had started a sword fight. As a matter of fact, I think Peggy Noonan may have told that story. Okay. So okay. How, how are they doing now?
1: They're doing great. They're doing great. Uh, our oldest, uh, John Paul, is 12, and uh, we have a girl, Christine, who is 10, and David, who is, uh, who is 6, and... Um, and they're still engaging in figurative sword fights, uh, trying to uh, trying to slay dragons and uh, and bad people. And um, we're trying to raise them, you know, in the Lord with the right set of values. And um, and they're uh, they're great blessings to Cindy and to me.
0: Well, there's just something right about a dad at work in the White House and his uh, his two little boys having an imaginary sword fight in the hall. Pete Weiner thanks for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed being with you. I enjoyed that conversation with Pete Weiner and I'm glad that Pete and his friend Michael Gerson have written this new book, City of Man. I think it's going to prompt a lot of discussion. But the larger issue is also now prompting a great deal of discussion, as Christians must rethink this question of our responsibility as Christian citizens in a new era. We can look backwards, and we can certainly see where there was too much optimism on the part of the new Christian right. There was a political hubris that had basically made its way into our evangelical worldview and understanding insofar as we, apparently, in terms of what was said by many of our leaders, actually seemed to imply that we believed that if we just got the laws right, the people would be right. Well, there's a biblical order here that reminds us that the law, insofar as the law is put in place by fallible human creatures— that that law actually reflects the culture that produces it. Now, one of the confidences of Pete Weiner and Michael Gerson is that the law can have a moral influence on society. I share some of that confidence, but I'm also aware of the fact that the laws are never much better than the people are. And what we have in a society is the reality that what we end up with as a civic order is remarkably akin to who we are as a people. We are armed as Christians with the theological reservoir with resources that enable us to understand this. We have the categories of common grace. We have the categories of of, of political responsibility and engagement. We have the category of, of the city of God and the city of man. These things are given to us. We are inheritors of these things in order that we can come to understand them. But, you know, this is where Christians also need to be reminded of the fact that the church's primary responsibility is a gospel responsibility that our ultimate concern, the ultimate concern of the church, is not with this earthly kingdom nor with the city of man, but with the city of God. And the only message we have that points persons toward the city of God and how they can be made right with God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the church is, first of all, a gospel community. Regardless of the regime, regardless of the government, regardless of the political season, the church must, in essence, irreducibly be the gospel people. We're also the people who must never invest in government, the hope for any kind of salvation. Political utopianism should be a theological impossibility for biblical Christians. But at the same time, there is no retreat. We we can't go into a cave and retreat as sectarians and believe that we have absolutely no political responsibility. When it comes to living in a republican form of government where citizens have a vote, the decision not to vote is itself a form of a political decision. There's no escape. The issue for Christians is how to be faithful in the midst of this. Pete Wainer made the interesting observation that a younger generation of evangelicals is revisiting this question. And, and they're looking backwards, especially over the new Christian rite, asking some basic questions, looking to see if indeed the new Christian rite was a, a noble or a failed experiment. It's interesting that Gerson and Wainer say it was probably both. And I think they bring a, a good deal of mature wisdom to answering that question. But, you know, as we look to this question, I think the most urgent issue is not just an analysis of the new Christian right, nor just an analysis of the coming generation, but the reality that there is no escaping our biblical responsibility to be faithful to Christ in every arena of life. And in the arena of politics, we've got to be the humble people who know that politics can never deliver the kind of of hopes that many people invest in it. But we also know that politics is a necessary realm of our involvement when we have been left in this world as salt and light. The church is a gospel people. The most important thing we need to keep in mind is that we have the message of salvation. And regardless of the regime, regardless of the monarch, the president, the dictator, the prime minister, regardless of our political context or season, the reality is that the church goes on and preaches the Word of God, teaches the Word of God, tells people about Jesus. At the same time as Christians, we are left here with a responsibility. Perhaps the best word here is stewardship. We have a political stewardship. We have a stewardship as Christian citizens. And figuring out exactly how to exercise that stewardship most effectively, well that's gonna take the best thinking, the, the, the keenest analysis, the most devoted prayer of every generation. We're living in times in which some of the most basic questions of human value and morality are very much on the line. We're living in a time of vast social foment and experimentation. Christians can't sit out as if we have no investment in this. At the same time, this is just another reminder to us that we are living in a fallen world. And it acts and sounds and smells just like a fallen world. We are not looking forward to finding our hopes resolved and uh, and, and our dreams realized in this world. That's in the world to come. But in this world, there is still important work to do. And even for the church, whose most important work is the work of the gospel, there is also the work of being in this world, but not of it, that is left with us. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. I hope you'll listen again next time. In the meantime, go to the website at sbts.edu for resources about Southern Seminary. And also go to albertmuller.com for a wealth of resources available to you about any number of issues. You'll also find links to the other program, The Briefing, which is a podcast available on both iTunes and through albertmuller.com. I hope you'll know about Southern Seminary's Preview Day on October 15th. It is an unprecedented opportunity for you to come visit the campus, sit in the classroom, meet students and professors, and come to understand what is going on on this campus and why we consider it so important and such a privilege. I'll look forward to seeing you at Southern Seminary's Preview Day. For more information, go to sbts.edu. I'll meet you next time for Thinking in Public. Until then, let's keep thinking.